Well, Heavenly Father, we come before you today with gratitude for all that you've given us. We thank you for the air in our lungs, the heartbeats in our chest, and the gift of another day with you. Thank you for walking alongside us on this journey we're on. We don't always get things right, Lord, and as a result, we wound one another with our words and our actions. We fail to be the church to our neighbors. We turn a blind eye when convenient, and we shrug off the opportunities to glorify your name. So Lord, forgive us for our shortcomings and fill our hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit so we may reflect your light to the world. And Lord, we ask that our worship today brings you joy. Jesus, it's in your precious name that we pray together. Amen. Well, friends, let me welcome you to worship, especially if you are just joining us for the first time. I hope you find your own life and soul just being enriched as we worship God together. I know many of you are wondering, when are we going to open Christ Church's buildings? Um, I've been wondering that myself. Uh, perhaps you saw this past week a letter shared by Dan Meyer in our weekly update that shared his reflections on when and how that may happen. If you didn't see it, you can follow the, the web link on your screen um, or go to our website. You can find that letter there. And if you're not subscribed to our weekly update, consider doing that so you can stay up to date with all that's going on at Christchurch. I also want to invite you um, next Thursday to a town hall meeting hosted by our senior pastor, Dan Meyer, where he is going to share his reflections on the reopening. And he's going to interact with you and the questions that you may have and would want to ask him. And so watch our social media this week. Watch the weekly update coming out on Wednesday to find more details about that meeting on Thursday. You know, I, I don't know about you, um, but I continue to feel the weight of the season that we are in. Um, our news and media channels, they just continue to stream just so much hurt and pain and violence and uncertainty. And I find myself searching for a word and the word that keeps coming back to me is hope. As I just witness and continue to watch the people around me and certainly around the world, I just find myself wanting to, to pray into and grab hold of this hope that only God can provide. In fact, could I just invite us to pray? Would you bow your head with me right now and let's just pray in to the hope and the things that we are seeing going on around us. Pray with me, please. Lord, we feel the weight of this season and we find ourselves um, really at some hard places at times. Lord, this week we mourn the 100,000 Americans who have lost their lives to COVID-19 and we pray for families everywhere who tears stream and whose lives have been shaken through these losses. We remember the parents and the children in places like Nairobi and Nigeria who are literally starving to death because of the food shortages brought on by this dreadful disease. Lord, we sadly add names like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery who and a long list of other victims who have suffered through the, the virus of injustice that still sickens the world. Keep us, Lord, from hardening ourselves, from hardening our hearts to these realities. 
For we know that it's through Christ that your heart is always turned toward those who are vulnerable and who are wronged. And as we pray for comfort to be poured out on those who grieve, we ask that you will move Christians everywhere to be agents of practical healing and love and help and reforming that is so needed in our time. Thank you that we're part of a church that is loving people and bearing hope in so many ways, like providing food for the hungry from Chicagoland all the way to Africa and a church that cherishes people of all races and all voices for a greater world of love and justice. Lord, even in the midst of our physical isolation, grow our hearts toward you. Grow our hearts toward one another uh, and all of the people of this world. Let this be a season where we find ourselves being truly conformed to that vision of hope and health that you described when you taught your disciples to pray, saying, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me in that prayer. You know, words like love and hope, those are words that describe who we are. It describes what we do as the church. And even as we have opportunities to invest our one and only life each day and the generosity of our resources, we have the opportunity to expand, to partner with God, to expand love and hope both here and all around the world. So I'd encourage you, we're going to take a moment now where we can give our tithes, give our offerings. But I want you to take a look at this video because it really does capture those words, love and hope and what we're called to and who we're called to be. So take a look.
Good morning and welcome to Christchurch. My name is Pete Stearns and I'm our pastor of Family Ministries. Over the past few weeks, we have been looking at the story of Ruth and Boaz and we've been examining those unexpected moments that come along during this narrative. Well, today we're going to be looking at a blossoming romance, a relationship that exemplifies the type of love that is unexpected and countercultural both in the context in which it took place and the world that we live today. You see, we live in a world that wants us to believe that love is a very individual pursuit. That love is this feeling, this emotion that dwells deep within our being, in our heart and our soul, and can only be conjured out by that perfect someone, that person that comes along and checks all of the boxes, that meets all of the criteria. And in that moment, we release our ownership of this feeling and it is matched seamlessly with our soulmate. I mean, think about the television shows that we watch, The Bachelor or Bachelorette or Love is Blind. We sit on the edge of our seat, wondering who they will pick and who they will turn, turn away. We have our bets over who we think is the best match and who we think they definitely shouldn't end up with. And we convince ourselves that love is a feeling, a sensation, and not a commitment. You see, some of the highest grossing apps on the Apple App Store are things like Tinder and OkCupid and eHarmony. Applications that allow us to quickly scroll through profiles and pictures to decide whether or not these people are eligible suitors, whether they check the boxes of appearance that we are pursuing in this individual form of relationship. We're a culture that loves to see sensational projections of love, and we look at these viral videos of proposals that are way over the top. And these proposals aren't even just marriage proposals. Instead, they're proposals for the high school prom. You see, even our weddings have shifted drastically. No longer are they worship services that are defined as a commitment that is ordained through God in front of a community of friends and family. Instead, they're extravagant productions, exhibitions of our personal love story for others to consume. But you see, when love becomes self-focused, when our relationship is dependent on us rather than God, it becomes increasingly fragile insecure, and unstable. In fact, the statistics aren't encouraging. 50% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. And 20% of marriages don't even make it to the fifth year. Well, today, as we look at the story of Ruth and Boaz, we glean a bit of relational advice that might allow us to place our marriages on a firmer foundation. You see, the love story of Ruth and Boaz is unexpected. It's destined to fail, but instead, 
It transcends the barriers of, of race and gender and thrives. But before we dive into this story, I think it's important to recap what we've been learning. I know that some of us haven't been able to tune in each week, and so I'm going to try to tell the story of Ruth and Boaz in just a short minute. You see, Naomi and her husband moved from Israel into a land called Moab. And while they were in Moab, their two sons married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Well, a famine struck the land, and Naomi's husband and two sons passed away. At this point, Orpah went back to live with her family. It was a much more stable situation, a place where she could be assured that she would be cared for and provided for well into the future. But Ruth recognized that if she had done so, she would leave Naomi destitute in isolation. So instead, she turns from everything that is comfortable and follows her now adopted mother to a foreign land. When they get back to Israel, Ruth goes out into the fields, attempting to provide for Naomi and herself. She gleans in the fields of Naomi's distant relative, Boaz. And gleaning is this process of picking up the leftover grain after the harvesters have passed through. And Boaz recognizes the incredible sacrifice that she has made for his relative, and he seeks to provide for her. And he tells his harvesters to leave extra grain behind. Well, after a while, Naomi begins to worry about Ruth. Naomi has essentially uh, decided that, that her life is destined for bitterness and loneliness, but that Ruth still has a chance. And so she begins to cultivate the love story that we enter into today. Would you open with me into Ruth, Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5? One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Now, this is how to be a helicopter parent 101. Naomi is meddling in Ruth's affairs. She is going above and beyond to enter into her relationship in an unexpected way. She has laid out the perfect plan for Ruth to end up with the perfect man. And let me pause for a moment to say, parents, if you value your relationship with your children, I would not do as Naomi did, because it's likely going to push them further away. But Ruth doesn't respond how you and I likely would. Instead, Ruth submits to the wisdom and the encouragement of her adopted mother and promises to do exactly what she says. You see, Ruth recognizes that community is essential in shaping our love. She values the support and the encouragement 
of this dear woman that she calls her mother. And because she respects her wisdom, she does as she says. You see, this value of community and family is seen throughout this story. In fact, Ruth does go and does exactly what Naomi says. And Boaz, who could have rejected her, this would have been unprecedented, unexpected for a woman to propose to a man, instead receives her proposal and enters into it. But first, he says he must go and talk to his relatives. He must go and talk to the elders of the community to make sure that they affirm this relationship, that they approve of this union. Well, you see, this idea of others being involved in our very personal pursuit of love doesn't really resonate in the culture we live in today. Earlier, I mentioned some statistics about divorce that were rather sobering. But I think it's compelling to take a deeper dive into the stats. 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And the University of Emory did a study to understand just how serious those numbers were. They surveyed over 3,000 married couples and looked at all sorts of different questions and factors in their relationship to try to find the most predictive measures that pointed to divorce or success. You know what they found? They found that if the couple was the were the only people present at the wedding, if it was just the groom and the bride standing before the judge, then that relationship was 12 and a half times more likely to end in divorce than a marriage that took place in front of 200 loved ones. Now, it might be easy to say, well, this is an outlier. Those that elope do so for a variety of reasons that would definitely meddle with the data. But more striking, they found that actually the number of attendance at your wedding was a direct correlation to the success of the marriage. The fewer people that you had standing beside you in support of this relationship, the more likely you were to find yourself ending in divorce. But those that had great crowds that had come out to support them, were more likely to find themselves in a marriage that could thrive and last. Now, before any of our prospective uh, couples, our engaged couples, go out and invite total strangers to come stand with them at their wedding, I want to point out that it's probably not just a numbers game. Instead, the reality is that the couples with hundreds of people standing by their sides are couples that take the role of community seriously in cultivating their love. They've recognized that there is deep value in surrounding their relationship with the wisdom of others. And they've found that when they have a wide support network, they are more likely to be able to survive the ups and downs of marriage. Now, before we go and assume that this is just a financial piece, obviously, the more people that are present, uh, the more costly the wedding. The reality is, is that $1,000 
on your wedding makes it more likely that you stay together than spending upwards of 20 or 30,000. So the less you spend and the more you invite, the more likely your marriage is to survive. Well, Boaz continues kind of this theme of caring for community and recognizing their influence as essential in cultivating his love uh, in the final verses of the chapter. He has promised Ruth that after he goes to the elders and his kinsmen that he will come back and fulfill his promise to her, but he doesn't want her to leave empty-handed. And so verse 15 says, He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. You see, Boaz has just accepted a proposal. He is certainly having his mind spin with the details of planning a wedding, and unlike today's day and age, he didn't have months to do so, but rather hours or days. And in the midst of his excitement, in the midst, in the midst of all of the details that are flooding through his mind, he recognizes the importance of respecting his future mother-in-law. And so he pauses before he goes off and he gives Ruth grain that will provide for her. We live in a culture that oftentimes sees our in-laws as a nuisance, as a detriment to this personal love journey that we are on. I mean, look at how Hollywood has portrayed the in-laws. You can look at the multi-million dollar film genre focused specifically on the families of the bride and groom. Think about movies like Meet the Parents or The Father of the Bride or even Monster-in-Law. Each of these portrays the parents of our significant other as a burden, as a barrier standing in the way of our love for one another, something to be overcome to be pushed aside. But you see, when we recognize the family of our significant others as a burden, we miss out on the depth of love that can be developed when we cherish and appreciate the support systems that have brought our loved ones to us. You see, Boaz and Ruth, first and foremost, recognize the significant value of family and community in cultivating their love story. And because of that, they have set their love, their relationship, their romance upon a steady foundation, one that is not entirely dependent upon their feelings, one that does not come and go as the butterflies in their chest, but one that is instead sustained by the wisdom, the encouragement, and the support of a broader network of people. But you see, they also recognize that their love has the potential to transform their community. You see, as we open back up into Ruth 3.10, 
Boaz has just responded to Ruth's proposal to him. And he recognizes the great character and integrity of Ruth as he embraces her offer to him. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. Now, I wouldn't recommend that you start calling your significant other your daughter. It's kind of a little bit confusing in today's day and age, but you know, it would have been a, a more normal term of endearment at that point. But he says, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, I think it's important to look at the contextual nuance to the words that he's just said. What is this greater kindness that he is referring back to? You see, we don't know for sure, but I believe that Boaz is pointing to that moment in which Ruth chose to choose a life of instability and vulnerability by accompanying Naomi to Israel rather than going to that which was comfortable, back to her family who could provide and care for her. And so Boaz says this proposal is an even greater kindness than your decision to follow Naomi here. That seems impossible. How could anything be greater in kindness than what she has chosen to do, turning away from a comfortable life in order to care for her widowed mother-in-law? Well, I wonder if Boaz is pointing out the reality that Ruth could have married someone else. She could have married a, a Moabite man, a younger man, somebody that would have held true to her values and her upbringing. But instead, she has chosen to marry an Israelite man, and more so than that, an Israelite man who is in the family of her adopted mother, Naomi. And by choosing to do so, she enacts the religious tradition and the cultural tradition called the kinsman redeemer. In essence, by marrying Boaz, she was assuring that Naomi would be cared for for the rest of her life. You see, Ruth has chosen a love story that is not her own. She's chosen a love story that values the voices of her community and her family. She's chosen a relationship that lifts up her mother-in-law and transforms her life as well as her own. One of my favorite movies is uh, from 2016, and it's called Loving. And it details the story of the relationship between Richard and Mildred Loving. It takes place in the 50s in Virginia. Richard is a white man, and Mildred is of African and Native American descent. Suddenly, they fall in love. And this would be commonly embraced and celebrated in the culture that we live in today. But in the 50s in Virginia, this was illegal. And they recognized that this interracial marriage was not allowed in their state, and so they fled off to Washington, D.C., they were married together and then came back to their home in Virginia. Well, just a few days later, the police 
burst through their front door while they were in bed sound asleep. They came barging into the room and asked Richard, who is this woman in your bed? And he pointed to the marriage certificate that he had hung on his wall and he said, she is my wife. And in essence, the police officer said, not in this state, she isn't. And they took them both off to jail. After their case was seen in court, they were told that they had to accept one of two punishments. Either they could go in prison for a year each, or they could leave Virginia, leaving their family, their friends, and their community behind, and go start in a place that embraced and accepted their marriage together. And so, of course, they chose to uproot themselves and move to Washington, D.C., And for the next five years, they had a life that was filled with happiness, filled with joy, filled with children. But after five years, this injustice began to weigh on them. And they wondered if they might be able to be agents of change in their community, to use their love story to transform their nation. And so in 1963, They took their case to court again. But this time, it wasn't a local court in Virginia, but rather, it was the Supreme Court. And four years later, the Supreme Court ruled, in the case of Loving v. Virginia, that it was unconstitutional to ban interracial marriages. And so, this relationship changed the tides of the culture here in the United States. And that ruling lifted the bans against these types of marriages in 16 of our states. You see, Richard and Mildred understood that their love was about more than just the personal experience that they had together. They could have been satisfied with the happiness that they had found in a new town, in a new city, and in a new state. But instead, they sought to transform the neighborhoods and the communities that they came from. See, just like Ruth and Boaz, they recognized their love as capable of having significant impact in their families, community, nation, and world. Well, we too have an opportunity to recognize our marriages as much more than simply meeting our own needs. We are able to see our relationship with our significant others as as greater than just checking our boxes about bringing us happiness, about, about meeting our needs, about bringing us contentment and fulfillment. But instead, we are called as believers to see our marriages and our relationships in light of the kingdom of heaven. And we can recognize that we are brought together under God and in the presence of our friends and family because we believe that this relationship gives us a transformative power to speak into our culture, to speak into our community, and begin to shape the world that we live in. You see, Ruth and Boaz overcame significant odds. They would have been expected to fail. Their relationship did not check the boxes of the cultural norms. But instead, they formed a marriage that thrived. 
a marriage that is recorded in scripture for us to read thousands of years later. And they did so upon upon a foundation of community, recognizing the power of family and neighbors and friends in their life, but also recognizing their role in shaping the outcomes and transforming the worlds of their neighbors and families. Let us be challenged to do the same with our relationships. Let us invite the support of others and let us take this torch to change our world for the better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to marvel at the unexpected journey of Ruth and Boaz. Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged by their romance. And Lord, that it would cause us to look in the mirror, to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, do we see our love as an individual pursuit? Or instead, is it a commitment to one another made in the presence of our friends and family that has the power to change our world? Lord, may we embrace this call and may we see our love in light of your eternity. We pray this in your name. Amen. Yeah.
May we receive this benediction. Let us be encouraged by the reality that our love is not an individual pursuit. Rather, it is a journey that we take with our family and our community standing by our sides in support. And may we also recognize and respond to the challenge to leverage our relationships in light of God's kingdom to transform the world we live in. Amen.